an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Thank you very much, Dr. Bergsman, for that introduction. It's wonderful uh, to be with you here. Uh, I would just like to stay, say that um, over the years, I've found out that it's good for me to start with a slight disclaimer, uh, saying that what you're about to hear is, is my opinions, that it's not my colleagues, not my university, not my mother disagrees with me. Um, <laughs> intelligent design is a, shall we say, controversial subject. So uh, this is just me talking. And the title is something different from what's in the program. I think the program had something mild like uh, the argument for intelligent design from biology. This is a little edgier, and it'll <laughs> I thought it might be fun to do that. But I'm actually going to talk about two, both of those topics, about the, the argument for design, and then switch over and tell you why I think design is not at all compatible uh, with Darwinism. Okay, uh, so let me th uh, uh, start here. Uh, in this paper, I will argue two points. First, that some biological systems at the molecular level strongly appear to be the result of deliberate intelligent design. And second, that Darwin's theory of evolution by random mutation and natural selection, the dominant view in the biological community, is utterly incompatible with the theory of purposeful intelligent design. So first, the modern argument for intelligent design in biology. I am well aware that arguments for design in biology have been made before, uh, most notably by William Paley in the 19th century. So I think it's important right at the beginning to clearly distinguish modern arguments for design from earlier versions. The most important difference is that my argument is limited to design itself. I strongly emphasize that it is not an argument for the existence of a benevolent God, as Paley's was. I hasten to add that I myself do believe in a benevolent God, and I recognize that philosophy and theology may be able to extend the argument. But a scientific argument for design in biology does not reach that far. Thus, while I argue for design, the question of the identity of the designer is left open. Possible candidates for the role of designer include the god of Christianity, an angel, fallen or not, Plato's demiurge, some mystical new age force, space aliens from Alpha Centauri, time travelers, or some utterly unknown intelligent being. Of course, some of these possibilities may seem more plausible than others based on information from fields other than science. Nonetheless, as regards the identity of the designer, modern ID theory happily echoes Isaac Newton's phrase, hypothesis non fingo. The fact that modern intelligent design theory is a minimalist argument for design itself, not an argument for the existence of God, relieves it of much of the baggage that weighed down Paley's argument. First of all, it is immune to the argument from evil. It matters not a whit to the scientific case whether the designer is good or bad, interested in us or disinterested. 
It only matters whether an explanation of design appears to be consistent with the biological examples I point to. Second, questions about whether the designer is omnipotent or even especially competent do not arise in my case as they did in Paley's. Perhaps the designer isn't omnipotent or especially competent. More plausibly, perhaps the designer was not interested in every detail of biology, as Paley thought, so that while some features were indeed designed, others were left to the vagaries of nature. Thus, the modern argument for design need only show that intelligent agency appears to be a good explanation for some biological features. Thus, compared to William Paley's argument, modern intelligent design theory is very restricted in scope. However, what it lacks in scope, it makes up for in resilience. Paley conjoined a number of separable ideas in his argument, design, omnipotence, benevolence, and so on, which made his overall position quite brittle for example, arguments against the perceived benevolence of the design became arguments against the very existence of design. Thus, one got the seeming non sequitur, stating that because biological feature A appears malevolent, therefore, all biological features arose by natural selection or some other unintelligent process. With the much more modest claims of modern ID theory, such a move is not possible. Attention is kept focused on the basic question of whether unintelligent processes could produce the complex structures of biology or whether intelligence was indeed required. Another important point to emphasize right at the beginning is that mine is indeed a scientific argument not a philosophical or theological argument. Let me explain what I mean by that without getting entangled in trying to define those elusive terms. By calling the argument scientific, I mean first that it does not rest on any tenet of any particular creed, nor is it a deductive argument from first principles. Rather, it depends critically on physical evidence found in nature. Second, because it depends on, uh, on physical evidence, it can potentially be falsified by other physical evidence. Thus, it is tentative, only claiming that it currently seems to be the best explanation given the information we have available to us right now. I do acknowledge that the scientific argument for design may have theological implications, but that does not change its status as a scientific idea. I would like to draw a parallel between the modern argument for design in biology and the Big Bang theory in physics. The Big Bang theory strikes many people as having theological implications as shown by those who do not welcome those implications. For example, in 1999, John Maddox, the editor of Nature, the world's leading science journal, published a very peculiar editorial entitled Down with the Big Bang, 
in which he wrote, apart from being philosophically unacceptable, the Big Bang is an oversimple view of how the universe began, and it is unlikely to survive the decade ahead. Creationists seeking support for their opinions have ample justification in the Big Bang. And by creationist, he means uh, anybody who believes that, uh, that uh, something beyond nature has affected nature. Nonetheless, despite its theological implications, the Big Bang theory is a completely scientific one, which justifies itself by physical data, not by appeals to holy books. I think a theory of intelligent design in biology fits in the same category. While it may have theological implications, it justifies itself by physical data. Furthermore, just as the Big Bang theory could be overturned tomorrow by new evidence, so could intelligent design theory. Both are tentative. With these preliminary remarks in mind, I now turn to considering the scientific case for intelligent design in biology. In 1859, Charles Darwin published his great work on the origin of species, in which he proposed to explain how the great variety and complexity of the natural world might have been produced solely by the action of undirected physical processes. His proposed mechanism was, of course, natural selection working on random variation. In a nutshell, Darwin reasoned that the members of a species whose chance variation gave them an edge in the struggle to survive would tend to survive and reproduce. If the variation could be inherited, then over time the characteristics of the species would change. And over great periods of time, perhaps great changes could occur. It was a very elegant idea. Nonetheless, Darwin knew his proposed mechanism could not explain everything. And in the origin, he gave us a criterion by which to judge his theory. He wrote, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed, which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down, adding, uh, however, that he could find out no such case. Darwin, of course, was justifiably interested in protecting his fledgling theory from easy dismissal, and so he threw the burden of proof on opponents to prove a negative, to demonstrate that something could not possibly have happened, which is essentially impossible to do in science. Nonetheless, let's ask what might at least potentially meet Darwin's criterion? What sort of organ or system seems quite unlikely to be formed by numerous successive slight modifications? A good place to start is with one that is what I call irreducibly complex. In Darwin's Black Fox, The Biochemical Challenge to Evolution, I defined an irreducibly complex system as a single system which is composed of several well-matched interacting parts that contribute to the basic function and where the removal of any one of the parts causes the system to effectively cease functioning. 
A good illustration of an irreducibly complex system from our everyday world is a simple mechanical mousetrap. A common mousetrap has several parts, including a wooden platform, a spring with extended ends, a hammer, holding bar, and catch. Now, if the mousetrap is missing the spring, or the hammer, or the platform, it doesn't catch mice half as well as it used to, or a quarter as well as it used to. It simply doesn't catch mice at all. Therefore, it is irreducibly complex. It turns out that irreducibly complex systems are headaches for Darwin's theory, because they are resistant to being produced in the gradual, step-by-step -step manner that Darwin envisioned. As biology has progressed with dazzling speed in the past 60 years, we have discovered that the cell, the very foundation of life, is run by machines. Machines made out of molecules, which, like a mousetrap, are irreducibly complex. Time permits me to mention only one example here, which will be familiar to anyone who follows this topic, the bacterial flagellum. The flagellum is, quite literally, an outboard motor that some bacteria use to swim. It is a rotary device, which, like a motorboat, turns a propeller to push uh, against liquid, moving the bacterium forward in the process. It consists of a number of parts, including a long tail that acts as a propeller, the hook region, which attaches the propeller to the drive shaft, the motor, which uses a flow of acid from the outside of the bacterium to the inside to power the turning, a stator, which keeps the structure stationary in the plane of the membrane while the propeller turns, and bushing material to allow the drive shaft to poke up, to poke up through the bacterial membrane. In the absence of the hook, or the motor, or the propeller, or the drive shaft, or most of the 30 different types of proteins that genetic studies have shown to be necessary for the activity or construction of the flagellum, one doesn't get a flagellum that spins half as fast as it used to, or a quarter as fast. Either the flagellum doesn't work, or it doesn't even get constructed in the cell. Like a mousetrap, the flagellum is irreducibly complex. And again, like the mousetrap, its evolutionary development by numerous successive slight modifications is quite difficult to envision. In fact, if one examines the scientific literature, one quickly sees that no one has ever proposed a serious, detailed model for how the flagellum might have arisen in a Darwinian manner, let alone conducted experiments to test such a model. Thus, in a flagellum, we seem to have a serious candidate to meet Darwin's criterion. We have a system which seems very unlikely to have been proposed, to have been produced by numerous successive slight modifications. Is there an alternative explanation for the origin of the flagellum? I think there is, and it's really pretty easy to see. The flagellum was designed, purposely designed by an intelligent agent. 
how do we perceive design? Design is positively apprehended in the purposeful arrangement of parts. Looked at this way, irreducibly complex systems such as mousetraps and flagella serve both as negative arguments against gradualistic explanations like Darwin's and as positive arguments for intelligent design. The negative argument is that such interactive systems resist explanation by the tiny steps that a Darwinian path would be expected to take. The positive argument is that their parts appear arranged to serve a purpose, which is exactly how we detect design. Let me reinforce the positive argument here with the remarks of someone else who is very concerned about the appearance of intelligent design in life. Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Thus spake Richard Dawkins on the first page of the first chapter of his classic defense of Darwinism, The Blind Watchmaker. Let me repeat, Dawkins says that's the very definition of biology, the study of things that appear designed. In his typically clear prose, Dawkins concisely stated the positive case for design in biology, which of course he was intent on demolishing. Yet what is it about living things that make them appear to have been designed? even to such a stalwart Darwinist as himself. Design isn't some default conclusion we draw when we can't think of anything else, nor is it based on, say, our warm, fuzzy feelings at seeing a pretty sunset. Rather, says Dawkins, it's what we conclude when we get in touch with our inner engineer. We may say that a living body or organ is well-designed if it has attributes that an intelligent and knowledgeable engineer might have built into it in order to achieve some sensible purpose, such as flying, swimming, seeing. It is not necessary to suppose that the design of a body or organ is the best that an engineer could conceive of. But any engineer can recognize an object that has been designed, even poorly designed, for a purpose. And he can usually work out what that purpose is just by looking at the structure of the object. In other words, we conclude design from the physical evidence when we see a number of elements coming together to accomplish an identifiable func function, the purposeful arrangement of parts. Dawkins doesn't just grudgingly acknowledge some faint impression of design in life. He insists that the appearance of design, which he ascribes to natural selection, is overpowering. The positive case for design in life is exactly as Dawkins sees. It is based on the physical arrangement of parts, 
where the parts work together to fulfill a function. And it is overwhelming. And because the positive case for design is indeed so overwhelming, it requires comparatively less explication. On the other hand, more attention is required to make it crystal clear why random mutation and natural selection, especially at the molecular level, are not the powerful explanations of life that they are so often touted to be, Pache Richard Dawkins, which is why the bulk of uh, my book, Darwin's Black Box, is devoted to that. By the end of the book, we see that there is little relevant evidence to show how Darwinian processes might account for the elegant complexity of molecular machinery. That there is a formidable structural obstacle, irreducible complexity, to thinking that such a mechanism can do the job, and that the appearance of design is even more overwhelming at the molecular level than at higher levels of biology. Here, then, is the argument for design in a nutshell. Number one, we infer design whenever parts appear arranged to accomplish a function. Two, the strength of the inference is quantitative and depends on the evidence. The more parts and the more intricate and sophisticated the function, the stronger is our conclusion of design. With enough evidence, our confidence in design can approach certitude. If, while crossing a heath, we stumbled across a watch, no one would doubt, as Paley rightly said, that the watch was designed. We would be as certain about that as about anything in nature. Number three, aspects of life overpower us with the appearance of design. Four, since we have no other convincing explanation for that strong appearance of design, Darwinian pretensions notwithstanding, then we are rationally justified including, in concluding that parts of life were indeed purposely designed by an intelligent agent. A crucial, often overlooked point is that the overwhelming appearance of design strongly affects the burden of proof. In the presence of manifest design, the onus of proof is on the one who denies the plain evidence of his eyes. For example, a person who conjectured that the statues on Easter Island or the images on Mount Rushmore were actually the result of unintelligent forces, would bear the substantial burden of proof that claim demanded. In those examples, the positive evidence for design would be there for all to see in the purposeful arrangement of parts to produce the images. Any putative evidence for the claim that the images were actually the result of unintelligent processes, perhaps erosion shaped by some vague, hypothesized, chaotic forces, would have to clearly show that the postulated unintelligent process could indeed do the job. In the absence of such a clear demonstration, 
any person would be rationally justified to prefer the design explanation. I think these factors account to a large degree for why, much to the consternation of Darwinian biologists, the bulk of the public rejects unintelligent processes as sufficient explanations for life. People perceive the strong appearance of design in life, are unimpressed with Darwinian arguments and examples, and will reach their own conclusions, thank you very much. Without strong, convincing evidence to show that Darwin can do the trick, the public is quite rational to embrace design. Now I'm going to turn to my argument that Darwinism is utterly incompatible with intelligent design. In July 2005, in the New York Times, Cardinal Christoph Schoenborn wrote, evolution in the sense of common ancestry might be true, but evolution in the neo-Darwinian sense, an unguided, unplanned process of random variation and natural selection is not. Any system of thought that denies or seeks to explain away the overwhelming evidence for design in biology is ideology, not science. I think these two sentences of the cardinals capture the crux of the discussion, and I think Cardinal Schoenborn is exactly correct here. Now let me explain why. Excuse me, it was a really good, good dinner. Um, <clears throat> discussion of evolution, Darwinism, and design becomes hopelessly confused if it, one is not exceedingly careful to define the terms and use them consistently. The definition of evolution that I will use is simply descent with modification, nothing more. That is, I use the word evolution to mean that organisms are related to each other by a process of physical descent, but the mechanism driving the origin and major changes in life is left unspecified. Now, by itself, such a restricted notion of evolution, while interesting, has very little limited importance to philosophy and theology. As Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger wrote in 1986 in his short book, In the Beginning, A Catholic Understanding of the Story of Creation and the Fall, <clears throat> it is the affair of the natural sciences to explain how the tree of life in particular continues to grow and how new branches shoot out from it. This is not a matter for faith. Most difficulties on the topic arise only when we begin to discuss the mechanism of evolution. That is, what exactly caused the major changes of life? What caused life to evolve into intricate and complex forms? On this point, the future Pope Benedict XVI was clear. He wrote, let us go directly to the question of evolution and its mechanisms. Microbiology and biochemistry have brought revolutionary insights here. They have brought us to the awareness that an organism and a machine 
have many points in common. Their functioning presupposes a precisely thought through and therefore reasonable design. And he continued, we must have the audacity to say that the great projects of the living creation are not the products of chance and error. They point to a creating reason and show us a creating intelligence, and they do so more luminously and radiantly today than ever before. Let us pause to notice three of Cardinal, then Cardinal Ratzinger's points. First, he says that life is not due to chance and error, a clear repudiation of the Darwinian claim. Second, <clears throat> second, there is physical evidence, physical evidence of design and purpose, the great projects of a living creation, which point to a creating reason. And third, Ratzinger cites the science of biochemistry, which studies the molecular foundation of life as having particular relevance. It is biochemistry that has brought revolutionary insights. That is, biochemistry has uncovered new physical evidence pointing to design. And it is molecular biochemical systems that clearly presuppose a precisely thought through and therefore reasonable design. With this in mind, let's consider candidates for the mechanism of evolution specifically for the evolution of the, quote, great projects of the living creation, close quote, the ones which, quote, point to a creating reason, close quote. The ones, <clears throat> let's consider Darwinism. What is Darwinism? Well, recall that Cardinal Schoenborn defines Darwinism as an unguided, unplanned process of random variation and natural selection. In other words, the very definition of Darwinism precludes a creating reason. If the great projects of the living creation were unplanned, if the process leading to them was unguided, then they cannot point to a creating reason, reason because in actual fact, nothing specifically intended them. In other words, Darwinian evolution of the great projects of life explicitly rules out planning or guidance by anyone, pointedly including God. No Christian who thinks consistently can accept that. Handsome fellow. Uh, Cardinal Schoenborn's definition of Darwinism has been challenged by some Christian thinkers such as University of Delaware physics professor Stephen Barr, uh, who we are privileged to have with us, uh, when he was writing in the magazine First Things in the year 2005. The gist of Steve's most important objection is the following. Although some materialistic, ideology-driven scientists do indeed use words like unguided and unplanned, the hapless scientists are either careless or overstepping the bounds of science. 
the only scientifically defensible statement that can be made is that the process driving Darwinian evolution is random. Here, Bohr means that the word random is used only in a scientifically technical sense, simply to mean uncorrelated. So the true scientific sense of random is just that mutations are not matched to the needs of the organism. Mutations arise independently of the needs of the organism. Grand claims about guidance need not be considered. In other words, the great projects of the living creation may indeed have been planned, but we can't tell scientifically. So Professor Barr accuses Cardinal Schoenborn of illegitimately introducing the theologically charged words unguided and unplanned in his definition of Darwinism. But purely scientific Darwinian theory uses the neutral word random. I think that Steve's criticism of Cardinal Schoenborn is profoundly mistaken in two ways. First, the scientific community, as represented by its leading members and by its leading teaching organization, contradicts Professor Barr. They explicitly do mean that Darwinian evolution was unguided and unplanned. Second, the substitution of the word random, even in a technical sense of uncorrelated, simply does not change the bottom line. Even if evolution were just random in Barr's technical scientific sense, it cannot be said that the great projects of the living creation point to a creating reason. Let me amplify these points. <clears throat> I should have stood in front of the mirror and timed this. <clears throat> First, the scientific community does indeed mean that evolution was unguided and unplanned by anyone, including God. For example, in 1995, the National Association of Biology Teachers, the leading organization of teachers of biology in this country, issued the following statement, quote, the diversity of life on Earth is the outcome of evolution, colon, an unsupervised, impersonal, unpredictable, and natural process of temporal descent with genetic modification. It is not at all difficult to figure out who they were intending to exclude with the words unsupervised and impersonal. Under public relations pressure, the NABT later revised its definition of evolution to leave out those words with the understanding that the word natural implied them anyway. But the first statement clearly takes the temperature of the organization. By Darwinian evolution, the members of our largest science teachers association explicitly mean a process unguided and unplanned by anyone. Here's a second example. In September 2005, two months after Cardinal Schoenborn's essay appeared in the New York Times, a group of 39 Nobel laureates sent an open letter to the Kansas State Board of Education, 
which was then embroiled in an evolution teaching controversy. The letter defined Darwinian evolution explicitly. Evolution is understood to be the result of an unguided, unplanned process of random variation and natural selection. Let me emphasize, this letter used the exact same terminology to define Darwinian evolution as Cardinal Schoenborn used in his earlier essay. The letter defining Darwinian evolution as unguided and unplanned was signed by Richard Axel, Nobel Laureate in Medicine, 2004, Linda Bach, Medicine, 2004, Gunter Blobel, Medicine, 1999, Aaron Chechenover, Chemistry, 2004, Dudley Hirschbach, Chemistry, 1986, Avram Hirschko, Chemistry, 2004, Roald Hoffman, Chemistry, 1981, Robert Horvitz, Medicine, 2002, and many others. Now, if the leading scientists who investigate biology and evolution represented by Nobel Prize winners in science, explicitly say that by Darwinian evolution, they do mean a process that is unguided and unplanned, then that's what Darwinian evolution means. We are not free to use terms in our own way, to invent our own private definitions, ignoring how the terms are used by most people in the field. That only confuses the issue. Darwinian evolution means unguided and unplanned. I think it is clear, therefore, that no consistent Christian can accept Darwinian evolution. But is it possible that we could have a philosophically tame Darwinism? Perhaps call it by another name to avoid confusion with what scientists actually mean by the term. Tamed Darwinism could mean something like what Professor Barr had in mind, that mutations are technically random, uncorrelated with the needs of an organism, but that definition would carry no philosophical implications about being unplanned or unguided, as the Nobel laureates intended we would leave those philosophical questions out of science. My response is a strong no. It is not possible. There is no such thing as tame Darwinism. Either the great projects of the living creation required planning or they did not. Random in Barr's technical scientific sense is no different from unplanned or unguided in the Nobel laureate sense. Let me explain. First, let us assume there is at least some true contingency in nature, including biology. For example, suppose some mutations do occur randomly in the sense that not even God explicitly intended them to happen. They are simply the byproducts of various physical processes, perhaps foreseen by God, but unintended for themselves, even by God. Such mutations, of course, would occur in a manner uncorrelated with the needs of an organism. 
Now, scientists see mutations that appear to fit that description all the time. Neutral changes, genetic accidents, they all happen in a way in which if we allow that there is at least some contingency in biology, appear unintended. The claim of scientists such as Nobel laureates that evolution is an unguided, unplanned process is simply the claim that such small, contingent, unintended mutations, which we have assumed do exist, are sufficient when coupled to the Darwinian mechanism of natural selection to account for the great projects of the living creation. Birds, fish, bacteria, the eye, molecular machines, everything. Nothing further is necessary. No planning or guidance. So Professor Barr's use of random in the sense of uncorrelated is a distinction without a difference. If the mutations that build the great projects of life are simply technically random or uncorrelated, then they are indeed unplanned and unguided too. And if random mutations can be put together to form the great projects of life, then those features of life needed no design. One objection that is often raised is that perhaps God designed the laws of the universe in the knowledge that they would lead to some sort of life. So in that sense, at least, we can say that the God is the designer of life. But such a view falls radically short. Consider the kaleidoscope. The kaleidoscope is a toy containing small, brightly colored, tumbling objects and a set of mirrors which reflect the view of the tumbling objects into repeating symmetric patterns. The inventor of the kaleidoscope can be credited with planning a machine which makes pretty patterns, but he can't be considered responsible for individual patterns that a kaleidoscope forms. So if, while playing around with a kaleidoscope, we observe a particular pattern which strikes us as really very attractive, we do not credit the inventor with that particular pattern. In truth, that particular kaleidoscope pattern was unguided and unplanned. In the same way, if the great projects of the living creation arise from simply the laws of nature, then, like a kaleidoscope pattern, we cannot say that they were guided or planned. But the view that God designed just the laws of the universe and the knowledge that they would lead to some sort of life or other with some sort of features has even worse problems. The great projects of the living creation, such as those discovered by biochemistry, about which Cardinal Ratzinger exclaimed, actually point more strongly to purposeful design than do the bare laws of nature. No matter how you slice it, in light of modern science, the eye or the bacterial flagellum, intracellular transport or a wing uh, the lo- <laughs> exhibit a greater finality, a clearer purpose, than do, say, the law of gravity, or electromagnetism, or natural selection, 
all of which are quite general. The purpose of the eye or the flagellum, however, are very specific. Both are quite precisely fitted to their jobs. Yet, if we are unable to discern design in systems which exhibit greater finality, then we cannot discern design in systems that exhibit less. If for any reason we cannot conclude that the eye was intended, then we cannot conclude that photons were intended either, or that the laws of electromagnetism were intended. The bottom line is that if the great projects of living creation do not point to a creating reason, then nothing in nature does. If we cannot tell that they were planned, then we cannot tell that anything in nature was planned. Now I know that over time, the term intelligent design has acquired a lot of baggage. So please put aside any preconceived notions you may have and let me try to reintroduce the term afresh. What is intelligent design? Despite what newspapers may lead one to believe, it has nothing to do with creationism, intervention in nature, or other such negative connotations. Rather, it is simply the assertion that design is empirically detectable, that design can be deduced from physical evidence, that the actions of intelligent agents can leave marks in nature and we can discern the actions of intelligent agents from those marks. Can we really tell from the physical empirical evidence that the great projects of the living creation were designed? Yes, we can. The future Pope Benedict XVI was exactly right when he wrote, we must have the audacity to say that the great projects of the living creation are not the products of chance and error. They point to a creating reason and show us a creating intelligence, and they do so more luminously and radiantly today than ever before. In other words, if we agree with Benedict XVI, we must have the confidence to say that the physical evidence shows such things as the eye, wing, or molecular machinery were planned. The processes which produced them were guided. Physical evidence shows that they were specifically intended. We must insist that without specific planning and guidance, they would not have come about, even given the general laws of nature. In other words, they were purposely designed. Thank you for your attention. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.